Hello everyone, it's May 18th, 2021. So Rocket Lab hit a little snag on its way to orbit, but they had a good first stage recovery. And SpaceX appears to be setting some ambitious goals for itself, but when does it not? It's got six months to put a starship in orbit. They don't waste time. And on that note, lift off. In me through the tower. Welcome to episode 309 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right. I did see in uh, Space News, but it was reported by the Washington Post. Uh, I believe that's the one that uh, Bezos owns. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was uh, such an early stage uh, of the kind of like proposal. But uh, a Congress person uh, has evidently asked for, I think, $10 billion for HLS. Wow. Which, really? I mean, <laughs> like, would even blow out the, uh, what, the four billion, I think, that, uh, Bridenstine yeah. was fighting for big time. We, we actually, we actually have that in, uh, in the SpaceX, uh, segment. Oh, I see that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Conflict of interest in reporting, at least in this case, <laughs> is not in effect. Right, right, right. Cause they, they, they did, you know, disclose that it's, you know, owned by Bezos. And plus, you know, honestly, the reporting, I don't think was too bad in there. Okay, well, okay, never well, mind then. That's uh, that's how good my banter is. <laughs> it seems like a lot happened this uh, this past week, but I think we're covering most of it. So, I mean, we have a good show. Rocket Lab recovery, um, and I don't know who wrote that title, but that's a good one. Um, I think that that you know that there's two meanings there. Um, I don't know if that was intended. <laughs> I, I wrote that. I thought it was a uh, the better uh, frame of mind to to bring into this one. Sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so Rocket Lab, uh, they had a launch failure, or a yeah. Well, I think of a launch failure as like you know like launch on the pad. But yeah, so they had an unsuccessful mission, but a good first stage portion of the ascent. Uh, but then something went wrong on the second stage. So, but they did have a good recovery of that first stage. So we'll talk a a little bit about that. But first off, what was the payload? I kind of wanted to mention that briefly. So there were two black sky imaging satellites that were lost and these were the uh, the eighth and ninth of the constellation. And I don't know if Rocket Lab had put up all the previous seven. I know that there were at least some of them. I think it might've been all seven. I don't recall. Um, I think that these were the last two, if I recall, Um, or no, probably not actually. No, no, they have several more due to launch towards the end of the year, but that might be impacted by this failure. So that was a payload that was lost. Yeah, so this is the the third electron failure, but it's really only the second for like an actual mission. The first time was their test launch. So I don't know if that really counts. They didn't even have a payload, as I recall. But uh, they had one more recently last year, almost a year ago, and that was the picks where it didn't happen emission, which was due to a faulty electrical connection on the second stage. And I feel like that was almost more recently because I know that we, it, it seems to me like we were just talking about that. It's already been almost a year, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, and that, that's, that's the real bummer is like it, it's two within 12 months. Mm-hmm. That sucks. Yeah. That's not good. So, and, and both of them are on the second stage, which is like, oh, mm-hmm. that really sucks. Yeah, I mean they're pro- I mean they're not related issues as far as we know. It doesn't seem to be. Yeah, I mean well, that'd be I mean, interesting th- if it, it was. Also, it also doesn't seem impossible that they would be right. I mean, engine failure shortly after startup. Yeah, that could be an electrical issue. It seems like they would have fixed that and fixed it for good, and that this might be something new. Um, just because I, I mean, like when you think about it, this you know this is a launch vehicle that hasn't flown a whole lot. I mean, like twenty launches is not a whole lot, and that's how many they've had so far. So it still seems kind of like early days to me. Um, although it's still not good, and you know they're going to have to suffer the consequences of that because they might not mm-hmm. be considered you know the most like reliable launch provider at this point. Um, yep. They don't have the best 85%. track. You know, they don't. They just don't. Have, yeah, that's not a good track record. So, but at the same time, it seems to me like that seems about par for the course. Um, I don't have any stats up in front of me, but how many fucking nines didn't make it during their first twenty launches? It might have been a similar number, or maybe not. I have no idea. I think if you look at the first five years of Falcon nines, it looks fairly comparable. But you had losses even before launch. Yeah. So there's CRS seven. There was uh, Orbcom OG two, um, which went into the wrong orbit. But it was a secondary payload on a Dragon launch. And that's it for the first 20 launches compared to Electron, which is two outright failures and I think a partial failure. But yeah, you got to, I think you have to discount 
launch one. Right. Well, and really that should be discounted because that wasn't like even a problem with the vehicle. That was actually just, you know, a ground telemetry problem. So yeah. mm -hmm. that's not even the rocket's fault. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it was a contractor issue, wasn't it? Like mm -hmm. it wasn't even mm -hmm. their problem. I mean, technically, you know, you're responsible for making sure that everybody who works for you is doing their job, but like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sam in the chat says, I'm not sure discounting launch one is fair. Plenty of vehicles have had successful first launches. Sure, yeah, I, to totally reasonable. I mean, you, you got to split hairs at this point, and I, I'm okay with splitting it either way. Colin says, Falcon 9 is not SpaceX's first rocket, while Electron is the first for Rocket Lab. Uh, that's also a good point. I think, you know, Falcon 9 is different enough from Falcon 1 that, you know, that there is some measure of of starting afresh but you know uh, clearly they worked out their their ground support issues <laughs> and you know i mean i don't know how helpful this is to point out but in the 2015 and 2016 you know there were i guess it was just over one year separated but you know spacex had two very high profile launch failures right they had the one where the second stage basically blew up in flight, and then they had the one on the, the pad, the launch pad explosion. Yeah, the Amos 6, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and, and I think that first one, that was the one that was supposed to resupply uh, Scott Kelly, right? I mean, resupply everybody on station, but that was the one that kind of made him a little worried about doing his ear in, in, in space. Yeah, well, that one had a, I believe it had a, it, it had some pretty important hardware, right? It had a well, I think docking maybe, mechanism or something. I think we lost a spacesuit on it, too, right? Didn't we lose uh, one on a... Oh, and it did have an, yeah, it had an idea on there too. Yep. It seems that like all of those failures, those first few initial SpaceX failures, those had to do with the COPVs and these ones seem to be some kind of like an electrical issue or it, at least it seems so far. I mean, um, the second one, I don't know. I don't know what caused it, but I, and, and I guess we should talk about that, right? Or at least what happened. Luckily, you can actually watch some pretty cool video, you know, like as it goes down and what you see is the first and second stage separate and then there's a camera that's mounted on the inside of the second stage, I believe and you see that as soon as the engine comes on it just you know makes a hard right turn or whatever like, like it just spins out of control it was just crazy how quickly that happened and i couldn't tell i don't know if there was feed at that point i couldn't see it like gimbal but it almost seemed to me like it had already been in that position when it came on but i could be wrong um yeah and i don't know if it would fit inside the fairing anyway or you know like the inner stage if it was hard to one side yeah um but it seemed like it came on in that position to me yeah i mean i think it i think it probably did come on in that in that position, whether or not it gimbaled before or after staging. Mm -hmm. But um, if you look at the velocity readout, it's funny because when I was watching the stream, like I, I didn't watch it live, so I knew what was going to happen, but I'm watching the velocity and it, you know, it's going up and up and up until Miko, the first engine or the first stage shuts down and then it starts slowly dropping due to drag. And then you have ignition and it starts jittering up and down uh, and it kind of moved up for a hot second then it started moving down but that jitter to me just said tumble uh, you, you know accelerometers don't work so well when uh when you're spinning like that uh and so uh it, it felt pretty good to then go um start digging through uh, uh amateur analysis online and see yeah look hey it was uh it was tvc'd all over all the way over to the side so and in fact there was a good comparison by Scott Manley, which, you know, he always does the best of them. And you can look at video of a previous launch and you can see how hard to one side that engine bell is. Like, it's not in the right position. So, obviously, you know, like that right there is a pretty good indication of yeah. what went wrong. So, we kind of know what the, Links you know. Links in the show notes on that one because it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's funny because, you know, these engine nozzles don't move that much in terms of, like, degrees. It's, you know, we're not getting up to you know, 20 degrees or mm -hmm. something like that. But, you know, if you, if you keep in mind how much they normally move, it's, it's kind of scary how flopped over it is. Um, and then, uh, if you click on the, um, the Scott Manley link, somebody replied with a nice ghosted image overlaying two different, uh, launch images. And they also brightened up the, um, running out of toes launch footage to, to make it a little clearer how much it's moved. And it, I mean, it's, 
it's pretty good. So I guess we can talk about the recovery, which, I mean, there's not much to say there except that it did go well. I haven't found much information on it, but I guess no news is good news in this case um, mm. that they had a good splashdown. Oh, but I did see an image. I still couldn't see exactly what, but um, so the heat shield, and I think maybe we had discussed this previously, so I might already be restating it, but the heat shield specifically is just on, you know, the bottom of uh, the vehicle because I think we were kind of trying to determine exactly where it was Um, but I saw a pretty cool image kind of like the back end of the rocket and it said that that is uh, the stainless steel heat shield but I guess it was painted black uh, because again I couldn't see what was what and I mean I I didn't realize until after we had that discussion how many other rockets did also have heat shields you know that don't (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, try to reland their core boosters just because of how crazy the thermal environment gets down there but specifically, they, they upgraded it. Yes. Yeah, so, so that was one of the, one of the kind of cool things that, you know, I was optimistic and looking forward to this, you know, launch, but then it, you know, unfortunately, uh, had a failure ultimately, but they did recover the booster. And yeah, they, they made some redesigns, uh, to really just keep improving on their sort of, you know, recovery in particular. The heat shield uh, has been redesigned to be stainless steel. And they also did some other, uh, TPS, uh, uh, thermal protection system tweaks uh, to it mm-hmm. as well. And so um, I feel like that was one of the kind of really big things that they did. Um, uh, that was a, a change. Um, they they re-flew uh, the uh, propellant pressurization system on this flight. Mm-hmm. And so that managed yep. to go back up and come back down in one piece. <laughs> and uh, they're adding a, a, a decelerator um, as well, some uh, deployable that he can, uh, Peter Beck couldn't go into too much detail on. Yeah, But all this should basically... Uh, just make it even more, uh, right? Because they're just kind of coming back in a very specific trajectory to be able to shed off enough velocity, and that tolerance will become a lot less strict uh, as they improve their kind of uh, heat management on their reentry. And so they'll have a little bit more of, you know, an ability to, you know, come in at different angles. You know what I mean? Like basically have a greater tolerance. That actually reminds me of something I forgot to mention that. Um, so apparently on this launch, and this is the first one to have actually done this, um, it, it actually throttled back the first stage to three Gs during mm. the ascent. And normally it just, you know, keeps on pushing. So maybe that has something to do with the recovery. Um, that would be my guess. Um, I don't know why else they would do that. That's, you know, cer- it, it certainly seems reasonable to me mm. to, you know, make that assumption. But um, so, yeah, that might actually have something to do with it. And I guess it didn't impact, you know, delivery to orbit too much uh, because they could do that because uh, certainly that's not going to be as optimal as just, you know, doing a hard press to orbit. <laughs> um, so they had to, you know, throttle it back to three Gs. But I guess that's probably necessary in order to recover it. Well, so, Dennis, you uh, you attended the um, press teleconference. I'd love to hear what your highlights from mm. that were. I forgot about that. Yeah, so you did attend oh. that? Cool. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so 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 it was it was a great conference. Peter Beck's always an awesome person to listen to because he you know you could tell he just he loves rockets. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's just not kind of giving yeah. you these kind of vague, uninteresting answers. And so um yeah, if I could try to boil it down to like kind of the mean things that were. I guess biggest takeaways that I took was, uh, again, the, the, the upgrade to the heat shield and the TPS system. You know, uh, I guess also a big takeaway was that, you know, there, he's very optimistic, you know, very happy that the team is very pleased with what they saw, um, from the previous recovery. And, uh, we'll see, you know, exactly, you know, how much this uh, upgraded thermal system helped, uh, uh, the mo- this most recent one. Another big thing that kind of hopped out there was that uh, the previous recovery they took a, a little bit of damage actually trying to you know fish the thing uh, the booster out of the out of the ocean because uh, you know it was pretty uh, it was pretty rocky evidently there were some pretty bad waves and so they've got this um, uh, system right this this new strong back structure that they're going to use and that I believe they used on this mission and uh, the name of it which Peter Beck apparently is not the biggest fan of <laughs> is Orca which is the Ocean Recovery and Capture Apparatus and so it's it's essentially this this cradle right that's kind of shaped so you can like you know nestle a rocket in there nicely and it basically slides off the deck into the water and then you can get the rocket onto there and then be able to pull it back onto the deck without you know I guess a little more smoothly it's interesting to me that they invested in that hardware when they don't intend to be splashing these down in the ocean forever. So I wonder if that's intended to be a backup in case the the helicopter can't grab it, or if they just think that they're going to be testing these guys for so long that they want to be able to recover them more easily. That's a, that's a great insight. And in fact, it will be a backup. They, they, they do plan oh, to keep okay. it on the recovery ship. So if they do end up missing a helicopter uh, catch, then they at least will be able to fish it out, you know, 
without risking as much damage because because i mean at least some components you know have been reusable even with these water landings and so um there's actually even a question brought up about are you is there any chance of you just abandoning the helicopter altogether and just sticking to water landings you know you're doing this and apparently you know you're saying it's, it's going very well you're able to uh, recover uh, a lot of components, like even the avionics, which they didn't refly, but you said they pulled out the avionics and they were in great shape. But um, the teams thought about it and, you know, con- you know, talks about it, but essentially they are still, you know, very much interested in moving forward with the helicopter because once once you drop it into seawater, right, there's all sorts of issues uh, that could potentially yeah. happen. Although the Rutherford's a lot more robust, apparently, than a typical engine for getting wet. All you got to do is spray, uh, basically blast some nitrogen through there and then it's good to go. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's what I was thinking is like, well, what's the point of doing recovery if you can't get those engines? Like, that that's the hmm. big deal. But yeah, okay. If they can, if they can potentially reuse those engines out of the water without too much additional, you know, sunk cost, that's pretty cool. I just had a crazy idea. Like, what if they could split the difference and then, like, maybe, you know, they can't do like, you know, a drone ship recovery. And if they can't get it in a helicopter, then maybe they could just like land it on a giant raft of some sort. that seems like soft enough that you know it like you know kind of like oh. provides enough <laughs> yield. Like that might be a thing. I don't know. Pretty much just you know have it land horizontally and set it down and uh that could totally work i mean yeah, like, you know, like such if, a thing does not exist but you know they would have to build it but it like scale up hard. scale up like if you if you're you know someone needs to jump out of a building you know to get away from yeah. a fire say or you got those humongous pads or or that person mm-hmm. who basically uh didn't somebody like free fall from a uh an airplane like without a parachute and just basically aimed for a giant yeah. pad in the desert oh, you know yeah <laughs> I yes. think it was like a giant trampoline type thing. Yeah, well, it's a safety net that like gives. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I I just oh. have one thing to point out, and that's that SpaceX is no longer trying to catch fairings uh, in a net. Like, it, mm-hmm. I I don't mm. think it's I don't think that's as as simple as uh, as our uh, younger like. <laughs> what is it like our uh, our naive childlike imaginations would like to would like to pretend to our ar- armchair engineering <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that's a good point um but then again i think maybe partially spacex decided to not pursue the fairings just because i think I don't, well i don't know they are going to be launching falcon 9s for a, quite some time but uh you know the ultimate goal is something more like starship and they don't have fairings and so like maybe it just wasn't worth it you know because like that was always the argument from the beginning um mm. which was not necessarily the best argument but it was a good one that you know these fairings yeah they're expensive but you're kind of spending a lot of money just trying to recover them but still i mean like if you could recover them it is totally worth it but if not then it's well, probably and, just not worth trying to you know yeah well that, that's the thing is like these fairings are going to be falling out of the sky on a regular basis whether you try to recover them or not if you've already invested a bunch of money in a boat and upgrading the boat and upgrading the boat a second time like it yeah <laughs> If your your failure rates have to be pretty darn high and your confidence that you'll be able to improve those failure rates has to be pretty darn low in order for, you know, just rolling the dice and, and just trying it to not make sense. Because, I mean, you know, th- those things are freaking expensive. Um, yeah. What was it, like $3 million or I six? So. I feel like it's one of those two. I think it's I think it's three each. Which is way more than yeah. I thought. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a couple hundred grand and then, you know. <laughs> So they cost carbon fiber, baby. Carbon fiber is not cheap. And spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about fairings more uh, later this episode. Yeah. Right. I was just thinking that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was so that was interesting, Dennis, that thing you had to say about the strong back because I didn't know how that worked I at wish all. We had, I wish we had photos of that because I, I would really like to see what oh, that looks like. Hopefully we'll is. see them soon. Oh, really? Yeah, I can uh, pull up the presser. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, like in, in a, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like sled, kind of half. Half, uh, or uh, like, yeah, uh, what's it called a uh, 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 a full pipe, like in skateboarding, right? But like a long, narrow one that's kind of mm-hmm. like got the right mm-hmm. aspect ratio for a rocket. And you ba- and basically it's on board, and you go and like you know set it off to the back and tip it down into the water. And then I don't think it doesn't go entirely into the water, but basically you guide the rocket, I think, into it. And then from there you can then kind of pull it up the sled and then. Bring the sled back in, kind of like a uh, like in the back of a moving truck. Wow, it's not. I, I guess you know electrons are obviously much smaller because that doesn't look too yeah. big. Like I know, right? right? <laughs> I mean, you just have to think of the photo of uh, Peter Beck standing next to one and like putting his hand on it. Yeah, because you could take off the second stage in the fairing and so. 
It's even shorter than you might think when you think of a, an electron. All right, so yeah, let's translate on over to SpaceX and uh, their recent FCC filing for a Starship orbital test flight, which uh, is crazy because I did not think that would happen like until, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would give it like a, another year, but uh, mm-hmm. this is a six-month window that they're looking for, and that starts on June 20th. So that's, you know, less than a year, obviously. So, I mean, did that surprise you as much as it did me because I was kind of taken aback by that news? Yeah. Surprised me, for sure. I mean, again, super heavy just seems surreal to me. And so the idea of one of those firing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, later this year, that's kind of just wild to me. Yeah. Not just test firing, but like going to orbit later this year. Is what's, I think that's just wild. Well, go, going going to space, the super heavy is. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And, and later this month is, is absolutely correct. Um, they uh, they applied for uh, an operational window starting June 20th and continuing for six months. So that's basically the end of June to the end of December. And like, yeah, that's that's a pretty long window. I'm I'm just surprised that they started it. Like their application starts June 20th. That seems very soon for them to both have the hardware ready, but also for all of the paperwork hurdles to be overcome. That could be really cool if they can get that thing up off the ground this year. But it doesn't, you know, but I was thinking it might not seem as crazy as you might think at first, just because the idea is to, I mean, like I... I'm I'm fairly confident that they can get Starship to orbit. It's just like having to bring the first and second stage back or the first stage and the Starship back, which they're not really trying to like land anywhere. They're just going to do splashdowns for both sections. So I don't think that that's actually that crazy because it seems that they have the whole launch thing down. It's just, you know, the landing that's hard. So it's funny. Something about the way that you said that made me think uh, of the saying, it's not the fall that kills you. It's not the fall that gets you. It's a sudden stop at the end. It's a sudden stop. Yeah. (laughs) So the FAA application had a couple of fun little details that we haven't seen before. I don't, I don't believe super heavy is going to burn for 169 seconds. There's going to be a two second coast um, before uh, starship, uh, lights up its engines. Super Heavy will be splashing down 32 kilometers offshore, 495 seconds after liftoff. Um, I, I think it's pretty cool that uh, separation happens 169 seconds in, and then it takes more than twice that for the vehicle to get back down to the water. Uh, it, it's unintuitive uh, until you think about the actual things that are happening here. The, the Super Heavy is going to be moving upward very quickly. <laughs> For quite a while. And yeah, splashdown. It, it, the application isn't specific about this, but I don't think it's too crazy to, to read between the lines that they're not going to be um, landing on their uh, oil rig super ASDS. I think the application would be quite specific if that was the case. They uh, they say they're going for a targeted and controlled splashdown. Okay, and just a quick uh, self-burn here. Sam in the chat points out that I have said FAA and FCC. So from this point previous, just uh, find and replace. Uh, it'll all be FCC. Um, the, the application that SpaceX put in is to the FCC for all their radio licenses. The FAA licenses are in regards to environmental impact assessments, which we'll talk about in a hot second here, but just wanted to, to get that sorted out. Um, so, so David, not only is the super heavy splashing down, but the Starship is also splashing down. Can you talk a little bit about that? So actually I can talk about it, but actually I had a question, but I think I pretty well know the answer. So my question about super heavy first is just exactly what are they doing? So I'm assuming that they are going to return. They're just not coming all the way back to land because that, you know, would not be safe because it's just a distance of 32 kilometers, which obviously is not far. Because at first when I read that, I was like, that's weird. Like, how are they going to travel just 32 kilometers? That can't be possible unless it's a very, very, you know, steep trajectory. But um, but then I realized, oh, it's probably just going to come back, but yeah. just not the whole distance because there's nowhere for it to land anyway. That's actually really insightful to interpret a, a boost back burn uh, in there. I think that's a really a, a really clever thing to have pulled out of that number. That didn't occur to me until you mentioned it. Plus, like exactly where, I mean, like if it could come back, where would it go? I mean, they might build something during that time, but I don't think that they're going to even attempt to land it yeah. on, if, you know, a solid if, surface. If I could provide a little context, uh, thirty. if I did my math right, which I think I did, uh, 32 kilometers after 495 seconds would mean a horizontal mm. speed of 230 kilometers an hour. 
okay, super yeah. heavy booster. And so that's it's a little leisurely. Um, that's, a, <laughs> yeah, that's a snail's face there. <laughs> yeah, that's basically straight up. Uh, straight if, up, yeah. If it's a ballistic. Okay, yeah. And I, I think I agree with you. I don't, I don't think there's much likelihood of them wanting to land super heavy on land, especially with how how bullish they were on sea launch for um, Starship and Super Heavy for um, intercontinental flights. It, mm. it just, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But what does make sense is landing on an oil rig that's 30 kilometers offshore versus a couple of hundred kilometers offshore. Yeah. But yeah, in this case, um, there's no information yet on whether it will be something, you know, like uh, that platform or like or if it's just going to be a splashdown. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I'm guessing they're going to do a somewhat controlled splashdown in the ocean. Um, and we know that that's what they're going to do for Starship. Yeah, so that's going to be landing 100 kilometers northwest of Kauai. And I guess that that's just because, you know, I mean, there is a fairly substantial installation there. Um, there's a there's a missile test range. I know it's Barking Sands. That's the name of the base. And so I'm guessing that they're just going to recover it and bring it back there. So if it touches down in Kauai, that's not even one full orbit. So I don't know if we can call this going into orbit. I mean, like if it has to do a deorbit burn, which I'm sure it's going to have to do, you know, it's going to have to control its descent somewhat. But I'm guessing that like if it didn't do so, it wouldn't stay in orbit for too long. I really want answers to these questions and I don't know how long before we get them. But um, mm-hmm. I'm curious as to what kind of an orbit this actually is because we know where it's coming down. But uh, we don't know anything else about the orbit itself. Um, if this is going to be more like a suborbital hop, you know, I mean a big hop, but still just a suborbital hop. Or if it's actually going to reach orbital velocity, which which I assume that it will, and then it's going to do the deorbit burn and do all that other stuff. So interesting. So yeah, so part of the reason they want they wanted to pick uh, the Pacific is so if there's, you know, a breakup of the vehicle, because this is gonna be the first time coming from orbital speeds, they want to make sure it's over over the water. Yeah. So just looking at a globe from Boca Chica, they their best launch azimuth is like uh west southwest or uh, uh east southeast right so if they if they don't do a dogleg maneuver they'll cross the equator south of the western lobe of africa they'll cross over like zambia and mozambique and madagascar crossing kind of diagonally across africa get to the lowest point in their inclination in the Indian Ocean and then start sweeping back up and just barely graze over the north edge of Australia, something like that, maybe hit the middle of Papua New Guinea um, in order to hit somewhere in the in the region of their of their landing zone in in Hawaii. So I guess the big reason, like obviously for this mission is really just to gather data. This will really help them flesh out exactly like any future design changes, or it will help guide them. And it will also help with their simulations because uh, it's very hard to do accurate simulations of stuff like this because uh, this is such a big vehicle. It's kind of unprecedented, and I mm-hmm. can only imagine that it's not actually possible. My guess is that this will be the most, I don't know, like wired up uh, vehicle in history as far as, you know, telemetry that they're going to be getting back because it's big and it's SpaceX and they want as much data as they can get. So that's my guess. It Like they're just going to be pulling every last bit of information that they possibly can it'll be cool to see uh, what they come back with yeah well i mean they're going to be throwing like more than a atlas 5 worth of material up into space mm-hmm. <laughs> and then having it all splash down in various oceans and gulfs of mexico and so you're gonna want to make uh, get your bucks worth out of that i imagine you know what's crazy is that they're only splashing this thing down a hundred kilometers off the coast Oh, n- northwest. Okay, so they're not going to overfly Kauai. Okay, okay. So I was like, man, it's it's crazy that they're going to be coming coming in hot. But no, okay, it's <laughs> that would be the the safer side. Okay, so to finally get to the FAA, <laughs> which apparently my brain has been wanting to do, um, there's an interesting uh, amendment proposal in Congress right now. Basically, Congress is not happy that. NASA only chose one uh, option A contractor for HLS, right? The thinking here is that uh, if they were able to choose a second contractor, it would be Blue Origin um, and uh, Dynetics is is right out. But um, just picking one, you know, certainly we we were kind of surprised that that happened. Um, And then we went, oh, that's right. We don't have any money. (laughs) 
or huh. NASA doesn't have any money. So, uh, um, yeah, uh, Congress isn't happy about it. So, um, right now there is, uh, a bill amendment, uh, that's been proposed. So it's, it's way far away from actually being turned into uh, actual legislation. But, um, what Congress is looking at is, um, telling, NASA to um, issue a second option, a contract. At least that's the way that I'm reading it. The problem here is that they can't do this. Uh, there's a certain amount of time that they have to wait um, before they can um, do a reselection. I don't believe the selection rules right now allow them to just approach um, blue and say, hey, do you, do you want to do this thing? It, it sounds like it's going to be a little fuzzy how they're actually going to be able to do this, especially if they want to avoid uh, contract protests, which uh, certainly uh, are uh, coming hot and heavy uh, when it comes to HLS. So Congress wants to uh, throw $10 billion at NASA to go do this, um, but the amendment only authorizes a spending. It doesn't actually do the appropriation. Um, and I I'm really sorry to both American listeners and to non-American listeners. The way that the U.S. government spends money is is kind of uh, complicated, and, and pro I think it's probably pretty wacky. Um, I I'm certainly not an expert in American uh, spending policy policy or any other country's spending policy, but it seems pretty wacky to me. Um, but basically you authorize spending and then you actually have to go appropriate it, which is, you know, adding uh, a line item to your, uh, to your budget, basically um, find, you know, actually taking that money and moving it from one envelope to another. Um, so this amendment only authorizes the money. It doesn't appropriate the money. So that would have to be a separate congressional action. Um, and then this amendment only uh, allows for annual appropriation. So it's not even uh, like, here's the extra money to do this and we'll guarantee you that you'll have the money to continue doing it. It's here's the money next year. We'll tell you if we're going to give you the same amount of money again. I don't I don't know. I'm not super confident that this is actually going to um, get added uh, to the bill. I think the the folks in Congress. It, who are involved in, in space, they, they basically have to do this. You know, their, their contract basically says you, you have to get as many things in space as possible, but not actually, you just have to act like it. Um, so it kind of feels like this might be a little, uh, like pro forma. Um, hey, I, I really don't like the fact that we don't have any redundancy here. Uh, okay. So I added an, you know, I proposed an amendment. Oh, the amendment didn't go through. What can I do? Um, but we'll, we'll see. I think it would be really, really great to have a second contractor. I think it's kind of bizarre that they only, the, the way situation, the situation is lined up. They only have, uh, the ability to do one. I think that, I think that's crazy. Uh, but you know, hopefully, um, oh, actually I, I jumped ahead. I totally jumped over the FAA, <laughs> the FAA bit. Okay. Well, uh, I don't want to say all that over again. So I, I'm just going to, hit rewind for a hot second here. Sorry, listeners, I'm jumping all <laughs> over the place. Uh, so that, the, that's the, that's the, the, uh, the HLS bit, the FAA bit, uh, goes back to the actual launch of super heavy. Um, the big thing that's standing in between, uh, us and actually seeing, uh, super heavy fly just as far as paperwork goes, um, ignoring engineering, as far as the paperwork goes, um, SpaceX still doesn't have uh, uh, FAA's consent to go ahead and fly super heavy, um, mainly because they don't have their environmental impact assessment complete. And I would speculate that it's going to be really tough to do because um, Starship's environmental impact uh, statement was put through, and it seems to have been violated just a little bit. It's, it seems like uh, there is more of an impact uh, than zero, which is what I believe is required. Uh, and given landing explosions, they've also um, gone beyond what their statement said. So that's just Starship, right? That's all that they're, they're good to fly right now. They still need to um, put I don't even think that they put out a uh, environmental impact statement for super heavy and the FAA certainly has not completed its actual assessment of their statement uh, and kind of confirmed that that's, uh, that's the case. So 
Will they be able to get that done by the end of the year? Will FAA uh, have given the green light by the end of the year? I I don't know. And I'm not super confident of either one, just running off of my gut feeling, not like uh, we know anything that you don't. So so I guess that wraps it up for SpaceX's uh, hopefully within a year, super heavy Starship launch. Can't wait to see that. Um, right. That'll be cool if that happens within you know the next six months um, or I guess, what, seven months or so. That's going to be awesome. Forget about it. it. It'll be awesome whenever it flies, but I, I like sooner awesome rather than later awesome. All right, three short and sweets. And Dennis, you got the first one. Copy that. First up, China successfully lands rover on Mars. Woohoo! While the Tianwen-1 orbiter reached Mars several months ago, the mission's lander and Jurong rover successfully touched down in Utopia Planitia on Friday. After landing, the 240-kilogram rover, named after a fire god, prepared for systems checks and a panoramic image of the surrounding area before its descent to the Martian surface. The initial 90-day mission will explore the local environment with its six science payloads, including a laser-induced breakdown spectrometer, a magnetometer, and ground-penetrating radar. This will make China only the second country to operate a rover on the red planet's surface. Next, Ariane 5 fairing issue may delay James Webb Space Telescope. The most recent launch of Ariane 5 back in August featured an upgraded fairing with new vents as required by JWST. While the vehicle has yet to suffer any fairing-related failures, data analysis from two recent launches have raised potential issues for the high-stakes telescope launch. Quote, a less-than-fully nominal separation of the fairing, unquote, was cited, and Space News sources indicate that separation-induced vibrations into the payload stack that were, quote, well above acceptable limits. Space News further speculates that the long delay to the next launch, uh, nearly a year compared to a recent average of fewer than 200 days, is indicative of investigation and possible corrective actions. Two missions are scheduled ahead of JWST and will hopefully prove the vehicle safe. JWST is expected to ship in time for an October 31st launch, assuming nearly but not quite all of the remaining schedule margin is eaten up. And then finally, Russia announces two actors and a Japanese billionaire to fly to space. Roscosmos announced that the agency has picked four people to serve as non-professional crew members and actors on board the ISS. Actor Yulia Parasild and actor-director Klim Chappelle. 36 and 37 years old, respectively, are scheduled to launch on a Soyuz MS-19 spacecraft on October 5th. More actors are expected to fly to station to ultimately complete filming. In a related development, Japanese billionaire Yusaku Maizawa and an assistant, Yozo Hirano, will launch aboard another Soyuz on December 8th. Maizawa is previously known to space enthusiasts for booking a SpaceX Starship slash Super Heavy flight to the moon, for which he intends to bring six to eight accomplished artists with him. And I guess this is training for the ultimate fly to the moon. Um, that's because right. so, I didn't know he was going to be going to space before he went to space. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, no, right. It was surprising seeing his name get some experience on orbit. I looked up this uh, Klim Shevchenko. He's the uh, director of Salyut 17, which um, I remember seeing a trailer for that. Like it came out a few years ago. It's a Russian kind of disaster film. Or, or, sorry, Salyut 7. Salyut 7. And um, it looks pretty cool. Like so. I would recommend checking it out. All right. Moving on now to this week in spaceflight history. We have a record number of winners, I believe. So the clue worked. Your clue last week, Dennis, a good clue. (laughs) I think think they got it. At least it ended the streak. (laughs) Yeah, it ended the losing streak. So we have 13 winners. Uh, We have Anderson Denova, who I believe guessed like right after we, because he was, yeah, because he was Mm -hmm. listening to the live stream Mm -hmm. there. So he, he knew it. And then we have Pierre-Louis Fan, Colin in the chat, Ben Hallert, Cy Kyle, Feeman, Space Hooligan, Zach. That's Iron Man, dude. (laughs) Oh. Well, I didn't pick that. Okay, well, if Isn't you separate it, it made him. Okay, it's a it. fun. Uh, okay, but if Twitter I say handle. Iron Man, but if I say Iron Man, then no one will get it. So maybe I should say so, like F E. You say Iron Man uh, spelled F E Man. F E Man or Iron Man or Ferris Man. Yeah, Ferris Man. Maybe that's better. Yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> Space Hooligan, Zach, Kevin Miller, Jason Friesen, the Greek. Peter McMally, Moritz Lenz, and Oscar Bastardo. Good uh, last name there. So that's all the winners. That's 13 people, and that is, I think, more than we've ever had before. 
So the clue was this week we deflated something, next week let's inflate something instead. So I guess you're going to tell us about what got inflated. Yep, that's, that is this week now, yeah. <laughs> and so the, the event that involved something that needed to be inflated was uh, on the 19th of May, 1996, and it was the launch of STS-77. And so this was a uh, space shuttle mission, uh, as you can imagine, <laughs> with uh, Endeavor uh, and a six-person crew. Um, I like to yap about the crew a lot, but I'll be a little quieter about this one uh, just for the sake of time. But yeah, I mean, among the crew, you had um, uh, Andy Thomas, uh, an Australian-American astronaut, and uh, uh, Mark Garneau, uh, a Canadian astronaut who is currently, as of this recording in 2021, a, uh, a minister in the Canadian government of something or other, and was uh, using the, uh, uh, the, the RMS remote manipulation system um, uh, or uh, Canada arm uh, during this flight. But um, there were a number of payloads here. And so the non-inflatable payloads included uh, Space Hab, right? So that big old uh, thing that you stick on board uh, in the payload bay, you have a little tunnel kind of connecting it to uh, the airlock. And um, this was, you know, being used for microgravity research. There was a dozen payloads on board. And uh, interestingly enough, when you look kind of at the manifest, two of the payloads uh, we're actually in the mid deck, but we're still considered to be part of Space Hab. So something about the way, you know, they're, you know, inventorying these. This, uh, uh, shuttle mission also had the Fluids Generic Bioprocessing Apparatus 2 or FGBA2, i.e. the, uh, Coke dispenser. Uh, this is the second time that flew. <laughs> uh, it also had, um, some, uh, gas cans, uh, the, the getaway specials that, you know, they basically stick on, you know, anytime the payload bay has kind of a space for them, uh, as well as a different type of experimental uh, tag-along uh, payload called hitchhikers. Um, and I, I wasn't familiar with these, but apparently they're they're like the gas uh, experiments, but these ones are a bit more involved. Like they require uh, electrical and uh, other support from the orbiter itself. Um, the the orbiter might have to make, you know, uh, attitude adjustments and things to get these hitchhiker experiments to be able to do their thing. And so there was uh, the TEAMS, uh, which stands for the Technology Experiments for Advancing Missions in Space. And so this, this TEAMS was uh, four uh, payloads. Uh, four hitchhiker payloads, including one that I thought was pretty sweet, PAMS, which is a passive, aerodynamically stabilized, magnetically damped satellite. And essentially what PAMS would do was shoot out a little uh, stew, the satellite test unit, and um, basically have the uh, shuttle uh, mess around with uh, uh, rendezvousing within, you know, about 2,000 feet or 600, 700 meters of it and basically see if the the, the you know, the rest of the PAMS uh, uh, payload could kind of, you know, acquire and, you know, interact with this satellite. Because as we know, right, the shuttles, you know, had to do a number of, you know, scooping up and repairing um, uh, uh, different payloads, or at least scooping them up. What was the magnetically dampened part? I have no idea. I mean, I didn't read up on it. I just looked at the four payloads and thought if any of them were kind of interesting. Oh, I see. Interesting they're they're magnet torquers. They're magnetorkers. Magnetorkers. Okay. But if it's aerodynamically stabilized, right? That part kind of hangs on me a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. Redundancy? No, I think I think you need both. I think one is like short term and one is long term. Um, just in terms of, of like uh, actually controlling your orientation. You got the, the long frequency oscillations and the short frequency oscillations. Yeah. Well, so... Uh, the flight measurements uh, actually weren't able to be collected just due to uh, unforeseen consequences. But the astronauts doing uh, doing their own estimates said that yeah, it looked like it it stabilized its attitude pretty well. So this particular shuttle mission had uh, I mean so many experiments because just like you know all the other ones, you you have a bunch in the mid deck uh, as well, and so there was. Uh, among those, uh, what was called the Aquatic Research Facility or ARF, ARF. And that had starfish, mussels, and clams on board. And so, um, you know, some critters went up on board with them too. Yeah, this, this was a shuttle mission that was really, really about research. You know, I mean, it was a free flyer. It wasn't heading anywhere. Uh, I mean, Mir was up at this point. There was actually a, 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 an astronaut on Mir, uh, at the time while, uh, you know, STS-77 was doing their thing. But uh, none of those uh, expand. Um, I know maybe maybe the starfish expands a little bit once it goes into microgravity, but I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a zoologist. But in any event, the, um, uh, the other type of, uh, you know, payloads, so there's hitchhiker payloads, there's gas uh, getaway special payloads. There's also uh, CAP payloads, which stand for Complex Autonomous Payload. 
And so uh, right there, you know, it's going to be something pretty cool if it's uh, autonomous, you know, and complex. Indeed, this was the uh, final of uh, the Spartan series of uh, free-flying satellites. Uh, we had talked about them before on a This Week in Spaceflight History. And so this was Spartan 207, okay? And so basically uh, on uh, flight day two, uh, it was uh, released. And so Spart Spartan kind of stands for Shuttle Pointed Autonomous Research Tool for Astronomy, which spells out Sparta. But um, this this was a, a series of um, uh, spacecraft that, you know, a lot of them just had uh, uh, telescopes attached to them. And so uh, even though this is 207, there was a 101 and then a 201, 202, 203, and so on. And so this was the eighth one. It was the final one to fly. And um, uh, essentially, uh, its goal, it didn't it didn't have a telescope on it, right? like some of these were X-ray or UV telescopes. Um, uh, but this one was a, an 850-kilogram uh, vehicle whose purpose was to deploy the inflatable antenna experiment, or IAE. And so right there is the uh, the, the clue. This uh, what, what what did we inflate this week? Well, we inflated uh, the inflatable antenna experiment. You know, going back uh, uh, 25 years ago. And so, uh, what is this? Well, as you can imagine, right? It's it is a uh, antenna. That's inflatable, right? Uh, as you can imagine, right? You want to have uh, larger and larger antennas for a number of different reasons and applications, whether it's Earth observation or communication and things like that. And the larger you get, uh, you know, you make it, the, the the greater the gain you can have, and so you can improve your signal. You, you tend not to have, though, you know payload fairings that are 14 meters in diameter. Something that people have been thinking about for ages, you know, is to basically, you know, experiment with inflatable structures uh, in uh, for rate, uh, antennas along along with other, you know, uh, contexts. You, you might want to have something that's inflatable. And this isn't the first time, you know, this was done, right? There was the uh, the echo uh, kind of uh, balloons or whatever the heck they were that were inflated back in like the 60s, you know, and they were, they were then kind of, you know, ground stations would basically, uh, you know, fire rate radar at them and uh, try to pick up an echo off of them, right? Uh, the IAE was a 14-meter uh, uh, offset parabolic reflector, um, you know, it's shaped like a parabola when inflated, or at least that was the goal, to have it pick up that shape. And it had a, uh, a quarter mil aluminized mylar uh, for the reflector part of it, too. And so uh, a mill, I have to admit, is a unit that I was unfamiliar with uh, before the show, but with Ben's help, that is a thousandth of an inch or, or about a width of a human hair. This would be a quarter of a human hair, essentially, if I'm doing that right. A little over six micrometers for anybody who's familiar with sane units. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little over six microns. That's, that's, this is wild. But again, I mean, this whole payload after, you know, giving you the dimensions of it was only 60 kilograms. So I can believe that. And so this is uh, uh this was you know designed by Lagarde Aerospace which is you know aerospace company still around there in uh California uh kind of near Irvine and was managed by JPL this concept began all the way back in 89 of actually you know coming up with one of these they uh were awarded uh basically to test it out on a shuttle launch uh through the uh, the instep uh program that NASA ran so this was you know kind of you know really you know, cutting edge, highly experimental types of, uh, of, uh, projects. And so the primary objectives were to deploy it, you know, successfully, uh, measure the surface precision of the reflector, where even though this is something that's deployed, like by, and then inflated with nitrogen gas, they were aiming for about one millimeter, uh, RMS precision for how, you know, close to an ideal parabola it is, which is, you know, I think pretty good for something that, you know, starts off very compact and then gets expanded to the size of a tennis court. And uh, all this done at low cost. Uh, it was about a million dollar project and uh, stowed in a small container, uh, something about the size of like an office desk. And so, uh, you know, that's that's about how big it is when you got the Spartan attached to it when it's in its uh, when it's uh, in its compact mm -hmm. configuration. So so I hate to burst your bubble, but uh, quarter mil um, mylar sheeting is actually not that crazy. Balloons are like six or seven mil, depending on like w what the quality is. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, the like space blankets, like the emergency blankets, those can be anywhere from like half a mil to, to one or two mils. So a quarter mil is thinner than most applications, but it's not actually that crazy. I'll say that it's might not be that uncommon, 
But yeah, I still think right. it's crazy. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm it, still amazed right. by it. <laughs> it. In industry terms, it's it's not that unusual. But in terms of like materials that we think of as you know workable materials, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're going to space. You you don't you, why why bring along four, five, ten times the mass that you could. But no, that that's awesome context though to kind of give you an idea of just you know how you know amazing material scientists and you know like you know how how, how incredible they can engineer these things that it's kind of it seems wild to me that you're getting to like you know microscopic thickness and then we've been doing it you know fairly commonly okay sorry to sorry to back us up here but um this is actually an interesting little fact off of wikipedia it says that aluminum foils that are thinner than one mil or or Uh thinner than five micrometers are impermeable to oxygen or are not impermeable to oxygen and water. You have to get above a mil thickness in aluminum foil before it's impermeable to oxygen and water. So a quarter of a mil, if it was just aluminum foil, it would leak water. That's crazy, <laughs> man. But obviously, obviously this is, this is mylar is the base and then they're um, probably mm-hmm. gas where they turn the aluminum into a vapor Vapor deposition. Oh, ga- ga- gas deposition. Yeah, vapor deposition. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so it's the mylar that's that's actually the the beef, and it's just a couple of uh, molecules of aluminum stuck onto the surface. But if it was just aluminum foil, yeah, it would leak water and oxygen. So okay, well, thank you for the context. That's really cool to think about. So so what does this thing end up looking like? Okay, so you got it basically attached to this, you know, free-flying spacecraft that's deployed, the Spartan uh, 207. And um, it's this, you know, uh, a rectangular container sitting on top, again, about the size of a, you know, an office desk. It includes, you know, a bunch of different parts when it's fully deployed. It's got, you know, this, the parabolic membrane that serves as the reflector that's kind of the you know the real meat and potatoes and it has a inflatable separately inflatable torus around it that's the support structure to hold the the reflector kind of in place and then it has three uh, uh 28 meter long inflatable struts and those all like basically just you know lead back to the uh the the, the canister and the spartan and that canister is basically you know again that's about the size of a desk that you know uh interfaces with the spartan and basically communicates gets gives it all the data you know pressure readings temperature readings um if they do that surface uh uh, uh, measurement of, you know, how, uh, how precise is the surface of the parabolic reflector? Um, all that stuff, you know, would be, uh, communicated through that interface. Uh, and then there was, uh, you know, the instrumentation like a radiometer, um, for doing that measurement as well as TV cameras. And so there's some really wild, um, videos as well as, you know, a lot of cool images. And so a uh, special thanks to Colin in the chat for, uh, uh, setting a, a really neat YouTube video, um, that shows the, uh, full deployment and uh, everything with this, uh, the IAE. And so really cool stuff. I mean, it's filmed in the 90s, obviously. Um, and so it's got that kind of look to it as, you know, essentially all kind of shuttle footage did. But mm-hmm. um, when this mm-hmm. thing deploys, man, it looks like a uh, like a jellyfish or something. It's kind of... That's beautiful. It's, it's, it's just wild hmm. to look at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely is a little helical when it first comes out. Oh, yeah. So so things didn't go quite uh, according to plan, although it still was a successful deployment. And so it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty wild what happened. So I think the Spartan goes and, you know, zoots away from the uh, the, the orbiter uh, to get itself in a, you know, orbiter moves a safe distance uh, away. Uh, one and a half orbits uh, just after, uh, you know, orbital sunrise, uh, the command's given to open the canister. And so, right, like I said, this, is, this isn't this is like a, you know, a cylindrical canister. It's, you know, it's a rectangular uh, shape one. And so the lid pops open. And so there's the one side uh, that the lid swings towards. And then on the other three sides, the struts are all kind of independently uh, inflated along with in the center of it, the, the, the bulk of it, right? The, the, the reflector and the torus. And what ended up, and so, and there's a, uh, a spring loaded, uh, ejector plate that kind of pushes it out, right? So it's going to be moving away from the Spartan. The, the idea was sequentially, right? There's basically supposed to get, you know, to move away from the spacecraft or from the Spartan, which is a spacecraft, right? The, 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 the IAE would move away, um, in particular, the, uh, uh, the torus and the reflector, and it would, you know, bring the uh, struts with it, and I, you know, and they would inflate in order, 
You know what I mean? And you'd have the Taurus go and inflate, and then you would have the reflector inflate, and then you have two of the um and ten uh two of the struts inflate uh to kind of hold it nice and tight while the third one then inflates to kind of finish things, and then voila, you've got this nice big antenna in space, essentially. And what ended up happening was just the nit there was nitrogen gas that was used to pressurize it to or to rather to inflate it. And this whole thing's supposed to take about five minutes, but there was basically enough residual air in there to start the inflation beforehand. And so everything was inflating in sequence. And so like, like Ben is alluding to how, you know, it was this chaotic sort of thing where you've got, you know, it's like a, uh, like a, uh, like a bouncy castle, essentially. All the different parts are inflating at the same time. And so at one point, the, uh, the, the, the reflector is kind of like folded in half. Like it's a, uh, I don't know, like an empanada or something. And, you know, and the, the, the struts are all, fi uh, filling up at the same time. And, and they still ended up using the, the nitrogen, uh, uh, the, the inflation system, but it was kind of just a big old, uh, wobbly mess where it was happening kind of, uh, in, in, in parallel rather than in series. So this is basically the same problem that you have when you, uh, put a marshmallow in a vacuum chamber. The marshmallow inflates because there is atmospheric pressure inside those little bubbles. And so they, they didn't get all, like now that I'm thinking about it, how would you get all the atmosphere out of this thing? But when it first deployed, it it already had more pressure in it than nothing. Mm -hmm. That's like watching this thing go. The the three arms that hold the reflector, they are so freaking long that it's not mm -hmm. at all surprising to me that this was as chaotic as it was. And it's actually even more surprising to me that it in it deployed properly like yeah looking at this footage <laughs> i would never want to do this intentionally um I, I would never be happy sending a payload to space if it deployed like this and, and what's even worse is like as they kick on that nitrogen you can see the nitrogen filling the tube but it's not nice and even because there are kinks um you get the pressure contained in in one portion of the arm and then the kink goes mm -hmm. zipping down the line as it inflates it's it's bad, man. This this was uh, a very early attempt at inflatable structures because we had no idea how to even analyze this type of motion to to do some basic prediction. This is this mm -hmm. is a mess. And then the fact that it <laughs> finishes inflating and looks gorgeous and impressive, <laughs> it, it's it's delightful. I mean, this could have gone real bad. You easily could have had a really bad tangle in these arms. I think as long as it doesn't tangle, then it will deploy properly because, I mean, this is in zero G, so you just have to take your time, which I don't know yeah. if, you know, how well they did that. I mean, it looks like it's happening pretty rapidly. I don't know if this is a sped up video. It doesn't look like it. It looks like this is real time no. um, just yeah, by, you know, the background, like the, you mm -hmm. know, the orbit. Luckily, those kinks can work themselves out just because there's like nothing, you know, that's holding mm -hmm. them back from doing so. Yeah. Na nowadays, yeah. we would have put those arms on reels and paid them out slowly. But if they're inflatable, that really poses some issues because you've got to inflate them from the opposite end. Jeez, that's that's just crazy. And think about like, look at the poor Spartan getting whipped around left and right because like yeah. the moment of inertia, yeah. right? Just because even though it, it weighs a lot more than the the inflatable antenna experiment, it's just so much bigger or rather longer. So it has such a large moment arm that it basically, yeah, as as the different struts are inflating some more than others, then yeah, it's just the the little Spartans getting bopped around left and right. <laughs> Man, I don't I don't like this at all. Like the, this this is scary to watch. And yet it yeah, like you say though, it just snaps into place at the end. It's like, geez Louise, you know, I, I guess there's a robustness that they built in there. But um there must have been some ways that if it was too tangled, you know, something, you yeah. know, uh, maybe a, a struck could crisscross on its like, you know Right. All it takes is for that reflector to turn uh inside out as it were, for mm. one side to go through two struts and suddenly that's that's unrecoverable and they they just got lucky because they inflated one arm before the other two and that one arm could have easily pushed things around in an unexpected way cool great video if you if you if you don't always check out our videos um you know in the show notes this one might be worth you know uh going to making a special yeah. trip to or at least you know just googling uh for yourself uh because yeah it's it's wild yeah when that second arm opens up it it very nearly turns inside out <laughs>
Yeah, they were just like a, a second away from disaster there. Yeah, so uh, it, it ends up, you know, inflating. And overall, it's a successful mission. Uh, they're very, you know, uh, the, the JPL, you know, the, the mission managers are very excited about it. And um, uh, there, there was kind of the one issue, though, that it happened, uh, you know, was that essentially the, the, the nitrogen inflation system kind of was malfunctioning. And uh, as a result, uh, the reflector never fully inflated. And so uh, Pierre-Louis uh, had, uh, in, in, in their guess, had uh, written that, you know, for, for an inflatable antenna, it ended up rather flat. And that's kind of the reason for that. <laughs> so uh, they weren't able to do the surface uh, precision measurement that they wanted to to see if it was, you know, accurate to within one millimeter of a, uh, a parabola, but it was still good. I'm going to go ahead and say not, not within a millimeter. No. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just look at that. I'm going to say nah. <laughs> yeah, and you can see the, uh, the light shining on it. And you can see how much kind of structure there yeah. is in the flat part but yeah and so um yeah so it, it's pretty neat right that this only happened or you know the experiment uh only really ran for uh one orbit so 90 minutes and the reason why is you can imagine there's going to be a lot more drag <laughs> on it than uh on the shuttle yeah on the orbiter and so as a result you know they put it in a lower uh, orbit so that way it would you know continue to race ahead of the station rather towards the station after the uh, end of that you know uh, orbit then the uh, the spartan uh, ejected the iae and returned to the shuttle and was picked up the next day and uh yeah things ended up working out well this was the final spartan the 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 two other that were scheduled uh, neither of them actually flew uh, the next one actually was another inflatable but it was called the uh, this was would have been Spartan 208 and it would have tested the shooting star experiment, which was uh, basically to inflate a giant uh, Fres uh, Fresnel, Fresnel lens at the end of like a long boom uh, for, you know, solar thermal propulsion uh, to basically go and get that to go and light and, you know, heat up a source uh, on the, uh, the Spartan, I guess, and see if, you know, you could provide uh, some propulsion that way or at least, you know, uh, as a demo towards that. Alas, uh, that did not fly. This was the last great inflatable uh, from the shuttle uh, Spartan missions. And so the one and only, I guess. So, so yeah, so that's your uh, spaceflight event. This was a cool mission. Like it's, it's interesting going back to old STS missions and how many strange things that, that they did. Mm -hmm. They did that tethered thing. They did that radar thing where they sent this like boom out, like <laughs> yeah, five orbital lengths or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like I think like, most of the crazy stuff that happens in space happens on space shuttle missions or happened on space shuttle missions. That's a good way to put it. I think that's true. All right. Well, thank you, Dennis. That was absolutely fascinating. Uh, next week is the 25th through the 31st of May. And David, do you have a clue for us? I do. And you're going to love this clue. Um, <laughs> so we're just going to keep with, we're just going to stay with the theme. So next week in 1975, last week we deflated something. This week we inflated something. So next week, let's unite something. Oh, I totally read untie. Uh, crucial distinction. <laughs> that would make, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to invert those two letters. That means the opposite. My uh, my dad had a T-shirt uh, when I was a kid that said, Bad Spellers of the World Untie. <laughs> uh, I like that. All right, yeah, I think that's a fantastic clue. If you think you know what it means, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck, everybody. Good luck. Let's now do upcoming spaceflight events. Got a couple of launches, uh, some other stuff too. So, Ben, what's the first thing? Yep. Okay, so first up, uh, we have a Long March 4B flying Hyang 2D, and this is an Earth observation satellite, the eighth in the series by my count. So that's launching on May 19th, and there's a NOTAM that I believe this, uh, this window is based off of, but, uh, right now we're seeing something, uh, on the order of 0355 UTC to 0421 UTC. Uh, for right now. Uh, and that's uh, launching out of Jiuquan. And then next up on the 20th, or probably the 19th, uh, we have the launch of a Long March 7, and that is launching Tianzhou 2, which is the first cargo delivery mission to the new Chinese Large Modular Space Station. So yeah, we don't know the exact time, probably around 1735 UTC. So that would be uh, like around 11 o'clock on the east coast of the states. So, but, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to watch this until it has successfully made it to orbit and done all of its stuff. That's just kind of how it works. I guess keep an eye out for that. Uh, see what you can, find out what you can, uh, or just know that it's happening. <laughs> and finally, in, uh, you know, landed assets, uh, news, uh, upcoming events, uh, again, thanks to Sam for pointing out a, uh, a uh, tweet 
by um, Cosmic Penguin, which in turn cites uh, uh, China Aerospace on Weibo, and it basically gives uh, some details on upcoming events for the Jurong Lander that you know we talked about, about earlier on the uh, short and sweet. And so uh, on May 22nd is, uh, if everything goes well, is when the rover is planned to roll off its lander deck and actually touch down on the uh, reach the Martian surface itself. And while uh, this is uh, more next week, might as well give a heads up now and we can uh, update it if needed next week. Uh, on May 27th is when the lander and rover uh, will have a mutual photographing session. And so the lander evidently uh, has deck cameras as well. You can get uh, that implication from there. And then the next day on May 28th, the first scientific data downlink. And so really exciting stuff coming up there. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be pretty cool. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so let's deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk to us directly by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.